in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're beginning a new study in the Gospel of John. Um, I preach six to nine times a year, so it should take us about 20 years to get through this book. Uh, not really. <laughs> Maybe a couple years, but we're going to begin looking at verses 1 through 3. Has anybody noticed this new pulpit? Yeah. It's going to take me a little while to get used to, because I usually have a cubby hole under here to stuff my page after I'm done with it, so I don't know what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> yeah, Phew, done. But let's get started. This is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I was around 19 years old, and in the Air Force, and I was stationed in Homestead, Florida, so I would go home on weekends. And one weekend when I was visiting my parents, somebody came and knocked on the door, and I opened the door, and outside were two young men about my age, wearing ties, and they had bicycles behind them. Now, you all guessed who they are. They, they were Mormons. And they wanted to talk to me about the Book of Mormons. Now, I was a new Christian, probably about six months old. And so the only thing that I knew about Mormons was that they, they don't believe that Jesus is God. So I tried to talk to them about this. But the problem is, I was only six months old. So I didn't know where in the Bible to show them that Jesus is God. So they rode off in triumph as I stood there in the agony of defeat. And so what I did after that is I ran in the house. How many of you have ever done that? <laughs> you run in the house and you start going into your Bible. And I knew to go to John, at least I knew that. And so I'm going through every chapter of John as quick as I can to find where it says that Jesus is God. And I finally saw it in John chapter 8. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the name for God in Exodus. And then in John 10, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. Well, that did it. I was ready to run out the door and chase these guys down. But I withstood the impulse of my youthful zeal. Ten years later, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in an apartment. And another knock comes at the door. I open the door, and there are two ladies standing there. One is an older lady, the other is a younger, and you guessed it, Jehovah's Witnesses. So, I was excited this time because I was in seminary. 
But more exciting, more exciting than that was, guess what I was doing at that moment when the knock came at the door? I was studying for a midterm. And guess what the topic was in the midterm? Proving the deity of Christ. Isn't God good? So I had, for the first time, a great conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses where I went through line by line talking to them about the deity of Christ. It was wonderful. But those two ladies didn't stay around long. They took off. I've never seen Jehovah's Witnesses leave so quickly. But there is nothing new under the sun, guys. Nothing new under the sun, especially when it comes to theology. There have been cults, and there have been heretics around ever since the time of Christ trying to disprove that Jesus is God. In fact, in 325 A.D., the church had the Council of Nicaea. And in this meeting, Athanasius debated Arius over the deity of Christ. And Arius was trying to prove that Jesus was not God by saying that he was one of God's highest created beings. That Jesus was like substance with the Father. Thus the Nicene Creed states this, that Jesus was begotten, not made, being of one substance or the same substance, which went against Arius, the same substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And that is exactly from the first three verses of John. Why did the early church fight so hard against these false teachings about Christ? I mean, were they just being nitpicky? You know, there's only two letters difference in the Greek word for like substance and same substance. So what is the big deal, right? Well, the deal is big enough that this gospel, the focus of the gospel of John, is the deity of Christ. And in fact, if Jesus is not God, Christianity crumbles. Christianity is destroyed. If John was writing a dissertation... In most modern universities, hopefully, still, he would be given an A-plus for his writing abilities because these first three verses are his theme sentence. And he's saying, I am about to prove that Jesus is God. And then he writes 21 chapters to prove that. And then he finally summarizes in... Um, in John 20, 31, by saying this, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John is a unique book, more than any other gospel. The other gospels are known as the synoptic gospels. This means they're very similar in composition. They, remit, they repeat many of the stories. 
But John, on the other hand, was the last written gospel, and he includes things that the synoptics omit. John includes the early ministries of Christ in Judea. He reveals that Christ's ministry lasted three years. John alone gives the story of the wedding of Cana and the changing of the water to wine. He alone gives the story of Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and the resurrection of Lazarus. And only John gives the Olivet Discourse in the last week of the life of Christ. And he does all of this to prove that Jesus is the infinite God-man. Well, let's look at the first verse again. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, why does John use the term Word for Jesus. Think about that. What does a word do? I, I looked it up in Webster's. It says it's an abstract way to communicate a meaning. Okay? And I thought, okay, let me give you a word and see what you think of. Let me give you a word. Tiger. What's the first thing you think of? Clemson. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> You're not supposed to say Clemson. You think of a large animal, a cat, right? With claws and fangs and something with stripes that you don't want to meet in the jungle at night, right? Or it'll ruin your evening. That's what you think of. And what's amazing about one word, right? When I say tiger, you don't say Clemson. When I say tiger, and yay for Clemson, right? Yay, they won. Um, when I say tiger... You can think of all those things with just that one word because that one word explains tiger. What does Christ do? Look at verse 18. What did he come to do? It says, he has explained him. Jesus, the Son of God, came to explain the Father. That was one of the jobs of the Incarnation. And look at the first three words of verse 1. It says, in the beginning. Where have you heard that before? Huh? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. God created everything. The universe. From just His words. Amazing. And he used those words, used the words, Moses used those words in the beginning. And so John does the same thing to grab our attention and to say, God is about to do something as stupendous as the creation of the universe. God is about ready to come to earth. God is about ready to put on flesh. Look at verse 14. And we'll be looking at that next week. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And next week we'll look at that word dwelt. It means to pitch His tent amongst us. To pitch it amongst our tents. Pretty cool. 
So why did he write these verses as he did? Well, we've already said that it's a thesis statement, that he's out to prove that Jesus is God. And the second thing he's doing is he is going to defeat anybody that is trying to say that Jesus isn't God. That's the negative sense. And many theologians believe that this book was written from the city of Ephesus. And in that city was a man named Serenthus, and he did not believe, and he taught this, that Jesus was not God, that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at the start of his ministry, and the Holy Spirit left him right before he died on the cross. And so what he is saying is he was teaching that Jesus, the man, died on the cross and not the Son of God. Now, the Apostle John definitely believed that Serenthus was a heretic. And one day when John was going in the bathhouse, according to the early church fathers, John was going to a bathhouse in Ephesus. He heard that Serenthus was inside, and so he rushed out of the bathhouse proclaiming this, Let us flee! lest even the bathhouse fall down because of Serenthus. The enemy of truth is inside. Can you believe the passion of the Apostle John for truth? Why did he have such a passion for truth? You know, why did he believe that that bathhouse could collapse at any minute on this man? And why did he not worry about running outside saying, this bathhouse could collapse. Why didn't he not worry about what others thought about him? Because think about this, guys. He lived with the Lord Jesus Christ for three years. He saw him walk on the Sea of Galilee. He saw him calm the Sea of Galilee. He saw him feed 20,000 people with a couple fish and a couple of loaves, Right? And he saw him cleanse the temple from the money changers who were stealing from God's people. And he was angry, righteous anger. And I believe John had righteous anger here because of his love for Christ. And because this man was saying that Jesus is not God. And he would have none of that. What would people think of John today in doing something like that? They would probably think that he's a hater, right? Because he stood for something. He stood for truth. And you know what? In this age of relativism, we need to stand for truth just like John did. Why do you think this false teacher, Serenthus, held this teaching about Christ. Because most could not believe in the incarnation of Christ. Most unbelievers could not believe it because they couldn't believe that God could come and live within a body. You see, they thought that the body was evil and the soul was good, and they most likely got this teaching from Plato who taught that the body was the prison house of the soul. And the only way for the soul to escape the body was through knowledge and ultimately through death. 
So their thinking would be, why would this perfect and holy and righteous God come to live within a body that we are trying to escape? You know, so many believe that, have believed that throughout history and have rejected the Incarnation. And that has slowly crept into the modern church where the body is evil and the spirit is good. And we need to feed the spirit through the word of God to free ourselves from our sinful body. You know, we need to stay away from things like music that can excite the body. We need to stay away from wine because of the possibility of drunkenness. We need to not marry. There's even some churches that teach that we shouldn't marry to avoid sex so that we can live on a higher plane. You know, this kind of goes along with the news right now, that there are certain things in our society that are evil, like guns. Guns are evil because they cause all the shootings that are going on, right? But if that's true, then guess what else is evil? Trucks. Remember what happened in France four weeks ago? Are guns evil? Is sex evil? Is music evil? Is wine evil? Is the body evil? No! Listen to what Genesis 1.31 says. It says, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. What is evil is not the body. David's been teaching this in the past three or four sermons. It's man's fallen nature which leads many to continually abuse the good gifts that God has given us. Well, look back at verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John is trying to show, as we said before, that Jesus is God, and he is battling against this idea that Jesus was begotten like each one of us. What he's saying is, in a nutshell, is Jesus was born, but he existed before he was born. That's what he's saying. Jesus was born, but he existed before he was born. That Jesus was there at the beginning with God. And the Holy Spirit was there too. We can see that in Genesis 1-2 where it says, the Spirit moved across the water. And then in Genesis 1.26, we hear God the Father say this, Let us, notice the plural there, Let us make man in our image. He's talking about the Trinity there. And what he's obviously saying is that Jesus was there before creation. He is God and one person 
in the Trinity. And in a negative sense, it's saying that Jesus was not created by God. If he was begotten in a human sense, there would have been a time when he did not exist, and then a time when he came into existence. And these three verses rule that out completely. They also show this, and listen to this, they also show that God could not create himself. Self-creation would be impossible even for God to do because it violates the law of non-contradiction. Listen to this quote. For God to create himself, he would have to be before he is. Does that make any sense to you? He would have to be before he is in order to create himself. That's impossible. That's ridiculous. And God cannot break the laws of logic. Why? Because he made the laws of logic. Right? He can't break the laws of math either. 2 plus 2 equals 4 all the time because God made those laws. is that Jesus is God and he's always existed. In fact, he is the only being in the universe that is self-existent. Verse 3 says that. R.C. Sproul says this about self-existence. It says, The notion of something being self-existent is not only rationally possible, it's rationally necessary. Again, reason demands that if anything is, then something must have within itself the power of being. Otherwise, there would be nothing. Unless something existed in itself, nothing could possibly exist at all. You hear that? Unless something had existence in itself, nothing could possibly exist at all. And this is a wonderful statement proving the deity of Christ. And if Christ is not God, then verse 3 is right. It says there could be nothing else. Because nothing from nothing leaves nothing. And this is a strong argument from theology, from the scriptures, from these three verses. But it's also an argument from the philosophy, which modern science has pretty much thrown out the window. You see, the evolutionist system crumbles under this kind of thinking. Ultimately, the, uh, the evolutionist has to say that something comes from nothing, which we've already proclaimed as an absurdity. Even if they say that everything came from the Big Bang theory, then you have to ask the question, well, what came before the Big Bang? And where did the matter come for the Big Bang? Now, they might answer you this way. They might say this. Well, then we believe like you believe. We believe in a matter that's eternal. Okay, just like you believe in a self-existent God, we believe in, in matter that's eternal. But you know what your question then would be for them? The first cause must always be greater than the effect. Now, you might be thinking, what does that mean? The first cause 
always has to be greater than the effect. Let me illustrate that. Let's say you get in a spaceship and you go to Mars. I think it takes 80 days. At least that's what the movie Martian said. Um, 80 days to go to Mars, right? So you land on Mars, you go down your ladder, you know, if there, there's a ladder on your spaceship, to get down to the surface, you take one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, right? And as you turn around, your draw drops, drops to the ground because there, before your eyes, hovering over the surface of Mars is the Starship Enterprise, right? So you're, you're freaking out. You're thinking, wow, wow, right? Now, let me ask you this. Is your first thought after turning around and going, wow, and seeing this, you know, spaceship, huge spaceship hovering over the surface, is your first thought that this thing produced itself out of nothing? <laughs> I don't think so. Now, is your second thought, oh, you know what? This spaceship evolved over billions and billions and billions of years. No, would you think that either? No. What would you think? You would think this spaceship that came from who knows where, or is from Mars, right, is parked there, you would go knock on the door of the spaceship and you'd think somebody's there that's pretty smart. An intelligent life form, right? Or if there was nobody at the door, you would get in your Martian rover and you'd drive all over the planet looking for a city where there are smart enough people, intelligent life forms, to create this spaceship. The cause... The cause, the intelligent life form, is greater than the effect, the Starship Enterprise. Does that make sense? So when you see the human brain that we can't even figure out now, I mean, science still can't figure out our brains, right? When you see that, why would we think, you know, that we're just part of an evolved system that took millions and millions of years. That goes totally against the idea of the greater cause than the effect. When you look at our mind, you have to know that there is something greater than us that created us, which it says in these verses is the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does this apply to you today? How does this apply? Why did Jesus have to be God? In order for you to be sitting here. Because if Jesus is not God, you wouldn't be here. This church wouldn't be here. This planet wouldn't be here. There would be nothing absolutely nothing and I can't even explain nothing without Christ can you wow that's amazing and, and I want you to think about that 
it says in verse 3, he's the one. We're not even talking about spiritual life now. We're talking about life. We're talking about when you got up this morning, did you think about this? The only reason why you got out of bed this morning was because of Jesus Christ, who gave you life, who gave everything on this planet life, because he is an independent being, and we are dependent beings, and the only way we take one breath is because of him. Amazing. How many times do we take that for granted? You know, each breath, each heartbeat, is because of him. I was listening to the radio this week, and I heard uh, Johnny Erickson on the radio, and she, she told of a story. Now, Johnny Erickson, I, I, some of you don't know who she is. Um, she, uh, was, she dove in the water at 17 years old, broke her neck, has been a paraplegic for... 50, 60 years. She's about 65. She also got breast cancer and survived that. Amazing, right? So she's going out to dinner with her husband, and they get to the restaurant. They're sitting down to this meal, ready to eat, and she says, could you see if my fork's in the purse? She has a special fork, I guess. She can't use her hands very well, so it attaches to her so she can eat, feed herself, right? Well, they forgot the fork. Now, you can imagine, that's kind of frustrating. You know, you forget your fork, you can't, you can't even eat. You can't feed yourself. So her husband fed her. And they talked and had a good time. And, and finally, you know, she was over a little, over her frustration. And a couple comes up to them after this and says, we were so encouraged by watching you two interact and seeing how you love one another, and seeing how, you know, the husband was serving her by feeding her, and they said it was just overwhelming, and we're so thankful for you guys doing this. And, and what it did for her was it just, she said, thank you, God. Now think about this. You know, we're talking about God giving you life. Um, she is thankful for her life. When 90% of her body she can't use. She's thankful for a fork that connects to her hand that she can hardly use. You know, what it tells me is how much more we should be thankful for what God has given us. But so many times, so many times we take it for granted, don't we? Secondly, why did Jesus have to be God? You know, I have so many conversations with people, and so have you, I'm sure, where they say, I think God is all-loving. Or I, I think God would never judge anybody because he's all-loving. Or I think God is sort of like Santa Claus, where he gives you what you want, when you want it, you know? But you know what? Without Jesus coming to this earth, without the incarnation, which we'll talk about next week a lot more, um, without him coming, we would be left with what if. Not what if, excuse me. <laughs> we would be left with, I think. I think God is this. I think God is that. Look real quickly. Turn to John 14. And listen to what Jesus told the disciples. 
about this. John 14, 8, Philip says to Jesus, he said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I have said to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. He's telling him, you see me, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to explain the Father. And when you see me, you've seen the Father. Because the Father's in me, and I'm in the Father. The disciples didn't get it. You know, they still didn't get it at that point. But that's what Christ came for. So we were not left with, I think God is this. Thirdly, why did Jesus have to be God? So that he could live a perfect life in our place. The first Adam failed completely in keeping the first covenant with God. God required, listen to this, God required perfect obedience in the first covenant. And guess what? Adam failed completely. So Christ came as the second Adam to keep that first covenant, and, he, and it required perfect obedience, and only God could do that, and he did. He kept the covenant perfectly. He kept God's law perfectly. In every way that we fail, and we fail every day. Isn't that glorious? You know what? I love that the Reformer said that Christians are justified sinners. That means we are perfect and holy and righteous in God's eyes, but we still are a mess. Amen? Fourthly, why did Jesus have to be God? So that he could be the perfect sacrifice. So that he could be the perfect Lamb of God to take away our sins. That's what it says in Hebrews. His death was able to satisfy God's righteous requirement for our salvation. And it's like this, in closing, it's, it's like, what I've told you this before, it's like if I went overseas and, and I killed somebody and I was brought up on charges of first-degree murder, and let's say they take me to, they're, they're going to take me before a firing squad, they tie me to the pole, they put a, they put a blindfold on, they have the guys ready to shoot, and then all of a sudden Jesus walks in front of me and says, No. And he hands the captain of the firing squad a document that says, this is a perfect citizen. He has never broken any laws because of my righteous record that has been imputed to his account. You need to let him go. And so they go and untie me, and I start walking away with that record in my hand, that perfect record, and then Christ, they tie him to the pole, they put the blindfold on him, and as I walk out of that field, I hear gunshots. 
didn't do that just for me. He did that for you. If you believe in Christ, right? But not only did he do it for you, here's the amazing thing. He did it for every believer in the world today that's, that's in church. Think about that, worldwide. Everybody in church today, right, that's truly his, he died for. But now I want you to think of this even more. Not only did he do that for his church today, but he's done it for his church throughout history, past, present, and even future. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Let's pray together. Father, we just praise you. We praise you for sending your son. We thank you for the wisdom and the glory of the incarnation that you came to this earth and put on flesh. And you did it in such a way to allow us to know you and allow us to know you in a personal way. And you also did it to satisfy justice and to satisfy your holy law. And you did it perfectly, as only you can do. Father, we praise you for that. And we thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for life that we have, not only spiritual life, but the physical life that you've given us. Help us not to be people who grumble and complain, but who are thankful for everything we have, even the trials in our life. Help us to be thankful for those. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.